Hey there, MLB Morning Coffee listeners. Love the show? Well, now we are open to advertising opportunities. Get your name and your brand on our show daily. Email greg.moraz, that's G-R-E-G dot M-R-O-Z at yahoo.com to learn how you can be a part of this program. Advertising opportunities now available here on MLB Morning Coffee. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Ah, yes. Welcome to another edition of MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Welcome on in on a Monday morning. My name is Greg Moraz. I am your host, as always. Thank you so much for coming along for the ride. As always, want to remind you to write a review, leave a rating, and subscribe. Helps out the metrics tremendously, helps us grow the product. You also want to help grow the product? You can advertise with this show. Email me at greg.moraz at yahoo.com. And also, tell a couple of friends to check out the show. I guarantee you they're not going to be disappointed. So, I will be full frontal with you that I record a lot of my episodes the night before. And although I really liked doing an in-depth recap of Ray's Yankees Game 5, if I had recorded the episode last night, you would have listened to it this morning with all of that as the only news. And sometimes, and granted, this is no philosophy to live life, but sometimes waiting is your best bet. And so while we're still going to do a recap of Ray's Astros Game 1 of the ALCS, there are two other news items that we have to get into before we talk about last night's game. The first is that we've lost another Hall of Famer. Reds Hall of Fame second baseman Joe Morgan died last night at the age of 77. He is a native of Oakland, California. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1990. Morgan's a lifetime 271 hitter. He had 268 home runs. He had an on-base of 392 in his career. Morgan was part of the team known as the Big Red Machine that won two World Series in the mid-1970s. Now, Joe Morgan was also later in his life known as the voice of Sunday Night Baseball, him along with John Miller. Joe Morgan was born in Bonham, Texas, but he grew up in the Bay Area. He died in Danville, California, which is just outside the city of Oakland. He won the World Series in 1975 and 1976, which, by the way, were also the two years that he won back-to-back MVP awards. In 1975, Joe Morgan led all of Major League Baseball with 132 walks, 17 homers, 94 RBI. He had an OPS of 974 and a league-leading on base of 466. Imagine that. He had a single season on base of 466, which means he's getting on base over 45% of the time that he comes to the plate. Simply remarkable. And then he followed it up the next year by having an on base of 444. He hit 320 that season. I forgot to mention in 1975, he hit 327. He hit 320 in 1976. He had an on base plus slugging of 1020. Because his slugging percentage that year was 576. He hit a career-high 27 homers and drove in a career-high 111 RBI. He never had over 100 RBI in a season other than that year, and his second-highest total was the 94 that he had the year prior. 
Joe Morgan also led all of Major League Baseball that season in OPS Plus at 187, and he drew 114 walks. Joe Morgan led Major League Baseball three separate times in walks drawn, 1965, 1972, and 1975. Morgan started his career in Houston, where he broke in with the Houston Colt 45s, which then became the Houston Astros. So, Morgan then moved on to Cincinnati in 1972, where he played until 1979. Then he went back to the Astros in 1980, then came back to the Bay Area, where he played for the Giants from 1981 to 1982, the Phillies in 1983, and ended his career with the Oakland A's in 1984. Joe Morgan spent parts of 22 seasons in the major leagues and then went on to a successful broadcasting career as the analyst on Sunday Night Baseball. Joe Morgan also ended up winning five gold gloves in his career, which were in consecutive years from 1973 until 1977. He is considered by many to be one of the greatest second basemen, if not the greatest second baseman of all time. A lot of people debate that between him and Ryan Sandberg, but that's a debate for another day. Joe Morgan, to go over a couple of superlatives in his career, he was elected to the Hall of Fame on the first ballot in 1990. He was a 10-time All-Star. He made his first All-Star team in 1966 and made eight consecutive All-Star teams from 1972 to 1979, which, by the way was every year he played for the Cincinnati Reds. Imagine that. He played for the Reds for about half of his career, and he made the All-Star team every time. Morgan died of polyneuropathy, which is, based on what I'm reading, a degenerative nerve disease. So rest in peace to Joe Morgan. I honestly remember my first time watching Sunday Night Baseball as John Miller and Joe Morgan. That's what I will always associate with Joe Morgan being the voice of Sunday Night Baseball. But to many generations of baseball fans, he was the greatest second baseman ever. So moving on from Joe Morgan, that wasn't the only piece of news that broke this morning. After their first playoff appearance in 12 years, the Chicago White Sox fired manager Rick Renneria, who took the reins in 2017. Renneria had a record of 35-25 and 25 this season. It was his only playoff appearance with the White Sox and his only playoff appearance in five years as a Major League manager. He compiled a career record with the White Sox, this does not include his one year with the Cubs, of 236 and 309. This is my analysis of Rick Renneria. The reason why the Chicago Cubs fired Rick Renneria after one season is that Joe Madden was available. And by that time in the arc of Joe Madden's career, Joe Madden had transformed the Tampa Bay Rays from a perennial laughing stock to a perennial contender. When Madden elected that he was not going to go back to Tampa Bay, the Cubs realized that this guy was a turnaround artist and would be the perfect manager to take a young core of players that were just starting to rise up into their prime and turn them into a contender and eventually a World Series champion. That was really no slight against Rick Renneria, who the Cubs had hired just one season prior to replace Dale Swaim, who was the first manager chosen by the Theo Epstein-Jed Hoyer regime. Through his first three years as White Sox manager, nobody really gave Rick Renneria a whole lot of judgment 
because his teams were not that good. It was clearly a rebuilding job, and Renneria was a manager that could be a really good player development manager. And I don't think that the White Sox necessarily cared. I think the White Sox were able to hire Rick Renneria based upon his credentials from his time as San Diego's bench coach and from what they saw as the Cubs manager. My point is, is that up until 2020, there was nothing to say about Rick Renneria as a tactician that you couldn't back up with, oh, well, his team is not very good. Any move that he made, you could just put it under the guise of this is a manager that doesn't have a lot to work with. Well, guess what? A lot of those guys that were very young and starting to learn how to become Major League Baseball players came into their own in 2020. The White Sox officially arrived as a contender in the American League. What the final few weeks of the season, and maybe the first part of the season, at least with the lineups and the Nicky Delmonico factor, because why did he keep putting Nicky Delmonico in the lineup? Rick Renneria, for as good of a player's manager as he was described to be, and for as good of a player relationships guy as he was described to be, Rick Renneria was a very poor tactical manager. We saw that time and time again in the last week of the season, especially in that four-game series in Cleveland. When he decided to bring in Carlos Rodon out of the bullpen in a left-on-left situation for a guy that hadn't pitched in almost two months and for a guy that was not a reliever. He hadn't pitched out of the bullpen since 2015. That blew up in his face. And then he did it again in Game 3 of the Wild Card Series against Oakland. I don't think that this move happens if the White Sox beat the A's in that series. But there were so many things that Renneria did wrong managerially in that series from how he managed the bullpen in that Game 3. I think looking specifically at that Game 3, the fact that he went with Dane Dunning to start and didn't let him get out of the first inning because that was his plan? Some of the lineup decisions throughout the year, not riding the hot hand, not playing the matchups properly. I think the White Sox realized that developmentally, they're now at a point where they can compete, but tactically, they don't have the right guy to compete with. And so that's why they decided, instead of hanging on a year too long and suffering what might be a similar fate to this year, the White Sox are going after somebody else, like the Cubs did with Joe Madden, to get them over the top. Now, there are three guys that automatically come to mind, and the White Sox are obviously going to have a wide search for their next manager. There are three guys that come to mind, and they're very, let's just call them out-of-the-box candidates. Alex Cora, who was fired by the Red Sox after the sign-stealing scandal, but who has a very good relationship with the White Sox. His brother Joey Cora was on Ozzie Guillen's staff for years. A.J. Hinch, who, despite the sign-stealing scandal, is regarded as a very good tactical manager. And then there's Ozzie Guillen. Ozzie Guillen, who was on the White Sox pre- and post-game show this year on NBC Sports Chicago. A lot of people were starting to pine for Ozzie Guillen to return to the dugout. And while Ozzie Guillen has got a lot of baggage, granted this is a guy that loves Fidel Castro, which I don't think is really going to fly given the current climate. But Ozzie Guillen is somebody that won the White Sox, their only World Series title in this century, and their only World Series title since 1917. 
Ozzie Guillen seems to have learned from his mistakes the first time he was a major league manager. There's familiarity there. But I don't think you want to hire what is being described as a retread. Which of those managers gets you over the top? Now, I want to throw somebody else out there. What about Bruce Bochy? I don't think Bruce Bochy was ready to retire. I think that Bruce Bochy, given that he's an old-style manager, was pushed out by Farhan Zaidi, the new Giants VP of Baseball Operations, because Zaidi wanted somebody like a Gabe Kapler that was going to be ultra-analytical and not your traditional baseball guy. Bruce Bochy, I do not feel like, wanted to retire, but basically was given the ultimatum by Farhan Zaidi that I'll give you one year you can ride off into the sunset as the manager of the San Francisco Giants. Now, Bruce Bochy is in an age, I think he's in his mid-60s. Bruce Bochy is not going to be a guy that's going to be your manager for the next 10 years. Bruce Bochy is going to be a guy that would be your manager probably for the next five years. I think he is younger than Dusty Baker, and Dusty Baker, I believe, is the only manager that's in his 70s. Somebody else brought up Ron Gardenhire, but Gardenhire retired from the Tigers fully knowing that he was going to have to focus on his health. And I don't think that you would just retire from one team and then just get hired by another team just like that. I think the Tigers would be pretty pissed. And I think Detroit has a very solid rebuilding situation as well that they're going to end up being a pretty good team in the next five years. Whoever the White Sox do hire, I do believe that it is time to move on from Rick Renneria. But I think that when you hire a new manager, you have to hire somebody that is not a first-time manager. You have to hire somebody that has been through the gauntlet and has done it before. The four guys that I mentioned, Bruce Bochy, Ozzie Guillen, Alex Cora, A.J. Hinch. Say what you want about the last two. All four of them have won World Series titles. Might I suggest that John Farrell, former Red Sox manager who was fired before they hired Alex Cora, who won a World Series in 2013, John Farrell could be a very good choice to be the next White Sox manager. You've got a lot of options for guys out there that have won before, that have done this before, that have taken their teams to the highest peak of the mountain. On that note, let's get to our recap of the American League Championship Series first game between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Houston Astros. This was another fantastic game. We're going to play multiple audio highlights for you here. We're going to start it off, though, in the top of the first inning. Blake Snell on the hill, Jose Altuve at the plate. The left-hander Valdez. And that one's in the air, deep left center field. Altuve's going to watch this one fly. And there she goes. Jose Altuve with a home run in the first inning. And he gives the Astros the early lead tonight. So Altuve gives the Astros a 1-0 lead. Blake Snell was looking very shaky early on. He did not have full command of the strike zone. He looked like he was missing his spots. But he grinded through the first three innings, got himself in and out of trouble, and was able to get through five innings, which is critical given that Tampa Bay only has three starters that they're comfortable using. Ryan Yarborough has starters length, but they use him as their bulk pitcher out of the bullpen once they use an opener to start the game. So basically, by getting Snell through five, the Rays did not have to overuse their bullpen. Tampa's offense was held in check by Framber Valdez, the Houston starter, until the bottom of the fourth inning when the red-hot Randy Arozarena stepped to the plate. 
One ball, two strikes, and a Rosarena into center field. That ball's hit well. That ball's got some trouble, and it is gone. Randy Rosarena, the fastball killer. Rosarena's homer ties the game at one in the bottom of the fourth inning, and here is a great stat that was put out by TBS's stats department. Randy Rosarena's four homers this postseason have him tied for third for most homers by a rookie in a single postseason. He is tied with Aaron Judge, who hit four in 2017, and Miguel Cabrera, who hit four all the way back in 2003. Number two on the list is Kyle Schwarber, who hit five for the 2015 Cubs. Number one on the list, and maybe this is a good omen for the Rays, it was Evan Longoria, who hit six homers in the 2008 postseason, the year the Rays lost to the Phillies in the World Series. It remained a 1-1 ball game until the bottom of the fifth inning, Framber Valdez against former Mariner and current Ray, obviously, Mike Zanino. Two outs in the inning here is Zunino. First ball swinging, and it's through the shift for a base hit. Adamas will score. And the Rays have taken a 2-1 lead. Mike Zunino ambushing the first pitch. That Zunino single came with two outs in the bottom of the fifth inning. Worth noting, the inning started with a Willie Adamas walk, then ground outs from Manuel Margot and Kevin Kiermeyer, which moved Adamas to second and third, respectively, before the Zanino single. So it's 2-1 Tampa Bay at that point. Entering the night, the Rays had won 59 consecutive games when leading after the seventh inning, which is a big credit to their bullpen. Tampa used John Curtis for the sixth inning, he one of their hard-throwing right-handers, and in the seventh, they used sidewinder Ryan Thompson. This is where things got interesting, and this is where we're going to play our final highlight. Normally, you figure that they would have probably gone to Pete Fairbanks, but with a couple of lefties coming up in the inning, Kevin Cash decided to go to Aaron Loop. Now, Aaron Loop has been very good for Cash this year, but Aaron Loop did not pitch at all in the division series. He only pitched once in the wildcard series. So he decides to go to Aaron Loop, taking a gamble with the race still up 2-1. to one. He hits Michael Brantley with the first pitch. Then he strikes out Alex Bregman. Loop throws a wild pitch with Carlos Correa up, and Brantley gets the second. So you've got the tying run at second with only one out. Now, because it was instituted prior to the COVID rules, the three-batter minimum applies in the regular season and the playoffs. So while in most scenarios, Kevin Cash probably would have just had Loop in to face Brantley, he had to face at least three batters. So he goes to Carlos Correa, and Correa walks. So you've got the go-ahead run at first, tying run at second with only one out. Now he's got Diego Castillo up in the bullpen. Kyle Tucker to the plate now. Tucker ends up singling hard to left field. That was a left-on-left -left matchup. So he wanted to keep Loop in for one more left-on-left -left since he had already passed the three-batter minimum. Sharp single to left. Over to third goes Brantley. So you've got the bases loaded with only one out, and the Rays' 59-game win streak when leading after seven innings is all of a sudden in jeopardy. He then brings in one of his aces, Diego Castillo, to score up with Uli Gurriel, who is mired in a very bad slump with the go-ahead run at second base, bases loaded, one out, and let's just say Diego Castillo arrived just in time to save the day for the Tampa Bay Rays. 
As he comes set, his first pitch to Gurriel is grounded back up toward the middle. Could it be two? Lau has it to second out. Throw to first. One pitch. A double play. That call courtesy of the Rays Radio Network. What a phenomenal turn of events for Tampa Bay. Diego Castillo on one pitch gets the Uri Gurriel game, or rather inning-ending double play. Rays win it 2-1 to one as Castillo goes boom, boom, boom in the ninth inning. Or rather, not boom, boom, boom. He allowed one hit in the ninth inning. He picks up the save. Snell with the win. He allows one run on six hits in five innings, two walks and two strikeouts. Framber Valdez takes the loss. Two runs on four hits in six innings, four walks, and eight strikeouts. The Rays struck out 13 times as a team. Second straight game that they've only scored two runs. But this is how Tampa Bay is going to win baseball games. They take a 1-0 series lead on the Astros. Only player with multiple hits in the game for Tampa was Kevin Kiermeyer as he went 2-4. for four. For Houston, Jose Altuve went 2-5 for five with a home run. Alex Bregman went 2-4. for four. So we move on to today. Astros and Rays game two. It'll be Charlie Morton, the former Astro, going for Tampa. Lance McCullers takes the ball for Houston. That game will get started at 1.07 Pacific time, 4.07 Eastern time from Petco Park in San Diego. Dodgers and the Braves get started in the NLCS down at Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas. It's going to be Walker Bueller in game one for Los Angeles against Max Freed, assuming it will be Clayton Kershaw against Ian Anderson in game two between the Braves and the Dodgers. So the National League is looking like it's going to end up being a very solid series. Already the Rays have taken command in the American League, and we will say goodbye here on MLB Morning Coffee. Thanks for joining us on what was kind of a somber day. We've lost a lot of Hall of Famers recently. In this year alone, we've lost Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, Tom Seaver, Whitey Ford, Al Kaline. And with the exception of Kaline, we've lost most of those guys in the last couple of weeks. So please, let's not have any more Hall of Famers die. 2020, we've seen enough. And that's it here on MLB Morning Coffee. Thanks for listening, and always remember that Black Lives Matter.